Welcome back to Two Keto Dudes. This is Carl Franklin from Connecticut in the United States. And in February 2016, I put myself on a ketogenic diet to take control of my metabolism. In just two and a half months, I managed to reverse all my markers of type 2 diabetes with diet alone. As of now, I'm 80 pounds lighter with no signs of diabetes or heart disease. Hi, I'm Richard Morris in Canberra, Australia. I've been on a ketogenic diet since April of 2014. When I started, I was very sick with complications from type 2 diabetes. Within six months of starting a ketogenic diet, all of my biomarkers of disease had disappeared. I've lost about 100 pounds and I've completely turned my health around. In this show is a document of my progress through ketosis and Richard's experience thriving for years in ketosis. Oh yeah. And hopefully that might help a few people who are curious about this kind of dietary hacking. Yeah, we're not doctors. We don't want to give anyone any medical advice, but we are keen to share our own experiences. We're actually both software developers, so we're not afraid of a little technical detail, are we, Carl? Nah. <laughs> We've done some research into our own deranged metabolisms and the science behind that. We hope to share some of that research. Where possible, we intend to put links in the show notes to cite research supporting any claims that we make. You'll probably work out pretty quickly that we're both foodies. Yeah, we sure are. We love to cook and we love to eat. Mm -hmm. And every episode, we both share a keto recipe that cannot be ignored. Cannot. <laughs> All right, so let's start podcast number 101, Zoe Rocks, part one. We're just so, Richard, do we have any apologies or corrections from last week's show? That was uh, Keto Centurions. That was our 100th show. And yeah. we actually do have a correction or okay. actually an somebody who's written in and said, I just listened to Keto Centurions episode 100. Congratulations on that milestone. And one brief exchange between you both caught my attention. Hmm. Carl said that he'd read the ingredients of a popular variety of snack almonds. I think it was Blue Diamond. Mm. Uh, yeah, he, yeah. And so Jeff goes on. He says, he noted that one of the ingredients was hydrolyzed vegetable protein. And you both wondered aloud why. Well, yeah. plant protein is quite high in glutamic acid, one of the 20 amino acids that are protein's building blocks. What happens when you hydrolyze plant protein? You end up with the monosodium salt of glutamic acid, otherwise known uh. as monosodium glutamate. And there's your answer. <laughs> yeah, glutamines. We all love umami, but we have been warned away from that devil MSG. Where food yeah. producers use the phrase hydrolyzed vegetable or plant protein it sounds a lot less evil. So there you go. That's why. Okay. I was more concerned about, what was it, uh, dextrose or maltodextrose or something that right. was in there. Yeah. Yeah, they had sugared them. Mm. Oh, well. Sneaky buggers. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> so let's revisit what a ketogenic diet is. Sure. It's any diet that puts you in a state of ketosis, meaning mm -hmm. you're burning fat for energy and yep. generating ketones for brain fuel and muscle fuel and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. And you can do that by lowering your carbohydrates to 20 grams or less per day. Right. And get those carbohydrates from green leafy vegetables and a few nuts. Yeah. Eggs, that kind of thing. And protein is moderate on a ketogenic mm -hmm. diet. That means not too much, not too little. About one to one and a half grams of protein for every kilogram of lean body mass. Right. And then all your energy you want to get from fat. Fat. <laughs> <laughs> ah, wonderful. Yeah. 
So how was your week, Richard? It was actually pretty awesome. I had a major milestone this week, as you probably know. Uh, mm-hmm. I went under 100 kilograms. Right. Uh, now, it was only temporary, but we've, we've had a, a heat wave here. Uh, for five days, and it's been over 40 degrees Celsius, and I've been out riding in the sun, in the heat, and so I get quite dehydrated, and so that was dehydrated weight. My real weight's probably about 1 or 1.6 kilos-ish, but uh, it certainly, uh, it means I've lost almost 50 kilograms for my highest weight. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Thank you. And the interesting thing is that my ketones are out the wazoo. I, wow. Normally, as you probably know, my ketones are normally low. Between 0.2 and 0.8 is my physiological range. And I really have to fast for three days and then do two hours of exercise to, to get above one. Yeah. Well, normally your ketones are lowest when you first wake up in the morning. And mine, I mean, they're n- never over 0.4 when I mm. first wake up in the morning. Except one exception was when we were in Breckenridge at altitude. Yeah. I saw unusually high ketones. But yeah. uh, so, so the interesting thing is for the past couple of weeks, I've been supplementing uh, uh, an amino acid called glycine. Uh, I'm, I'm doing an experiment um, to see if I'm conditionally de- um, uh, deficient in it. Um, I eat a lot of connective tissue and skin, pork belly. And so I shouldn't be deficient. I should be getting adequate supplies from diet. But I wanted to see if I supplement, um, do I see a change in, in my glucose uh, dynamics? And boy, did I. My ketones this morning were 1.9. Wow. I know, now, right? Did you make any other changes to your diet or lifestyle, like uh, not eating after a certain time or giving up uh, aspartame or sucralose or whatever? Any other things? So I, I've been using this um, glycine. Glycine is actually a sweet amino acid. It's colorless, so it's a white, a white crystal, uh, and it's really quite sweet. It's not as sweet as sugar, but uh, it got its name originally from tasting sweet, hmm. uh, hence the name. So I've been using it as a sweetener in my coffee in the morning. You know, I replace sucralose um, in my coffee with uh, glycine, uh, a little oh. half a teaspoon of glycine. But I'm not replacing sucralose in green tea that I drink of an evening. So I'm not removing sucralose from my diet. I see. I'm just adding glycine to see if I was conditionally uh, deficient. That's interesting. The other possible confound is it's been hot and I've been doing some cycling. So, yeah. you know, I mean, that, that, those are things that you have to take into account. And you've also been fasting a little bit more normally than you used to. You've been fasting every Monday and Tuesday for a couple of months now? Ever since I got back from America in October. So, but I mean, yeah. the, the changes in my ketones have only been in, in the past week or so. And the okay. changes in my weight, my weight has dropped significantly in that time. Also, oh. I'm, I'm eating less. Now, you might want to say, okay, well, you're eating less, you're doing more exercise, so it's obvious that you lose weight. Because, yeah, right. you know, calories in, calories out. But the simple fact of it is that, that if my ketones are up that high, then my insulin is low. And yeah. I've been testing my, I test my blood pressure all the time because I used to be hypertensive. I'm no longer hypertensive, but uh, ever since this intervention, my systolic and diastolic have been trending 10 points um, lower each. Great. So, so you know, that, that indicates that, um, that it's quite possible that I've actually broken through an insulin plateau more so than a weight plateau, and then yeah. everything else flows on from that. But I'm going to 
do my quarterly uh, blood test uh, on Monday. We were recording on Saturday. So I should know in the next couple of days uh, what my fasting insulin is. And as we know, that's been stubbornly high for almost three years, no matter what I do. Oh, great. So it's going to be interesting. We should be able to see if insulin is the underlying factor that's causing this. And then I'll be able to turn off or turn on the glycine supplementation and see if I can perturb my insulin results so so there you go that that's that's my that's my week i've had a a major plateau break uh i've also uh getting lots of ketones and there's also one extra thing that i want to mention uh this part of the show there's a sydney keto meetup coming on the 28th of january uh, and you can see more information in the ketogenic forums on that so go to the ketogenic forums and and look up sydney keto and you'll find details of that meetup that's great. So that's my my news for this week. How about yours, Carl? Oh, okay. Well, I uh, am in London. I've been here for, not New London, London, <laughs> <laughs> London, England. Yeah. Been here for a conference all week. I got here last Saturday. This is the next Saturday, so I'm flying home tonight. But uh, basically what I did was, uh, before I got on the plane last Saturday, mm-hmm. I stopped at Michael Jordan's uh, steakhouse in the Mohegan Sun Casino. Nice. And they have this double lamb chop. Like, so it's, it's a lamb chop with two bones, so it's right. double thick. So it's yeah. a couple of inches thick. Mm-hmm. And then there's two of them on the plate, and it comes on <gasps> uh, with some chimichurri and, and some of that. And I just asked for a bunch of melted butter on the side. And that's yeah. all I got. I didn't get yeah. any sides. I didn't get any salads or whatever. And I just ate that and, and literally drank all the butter. Just wanted to get <laughs> as much fat. And that was my only meal that day. So then I went right to the plane and I fasted for two days. So I got here. I fasted another day, um, day and a half. And then uh, the first meal I ate, you know, was like in the, in the afternoon. And it, it was just great. I just felt awesome. Felt like I've had a superpower all week, you know. Yeah, nice. And uh, so, I found this other restaurant here, right near Buckingham Palace, which is where my hotel is. Mm-hmm. So, right down the street is this restaurant called the Stoke House. Okay. And uh, you know it's a keto-friendly place when they ask if they can bring you some olives instead of bread. Like, they didn't yeah. even say, do you want bread? They just said, would you like some olives? Nice. Why, yes, I would. Thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> And uh, it's all slow roasted meats. They have a lamb belly. Mm-hmm. Mm, you know, yeah. it's wonderful. Uh, yeah. It's it's basically lamb breast, but it you know think of a pork belly. It's got that much fat on it, right? You know. And uh, they also have a slow roasted beef rib. Mm. You know, short rib. Yeah. And it's just the meat; doesn't come with any bones. And they also mm. have um, uh, rump roast, which has a nice fat cap on it. Nice. And you can get a, a platter for two that contains those three meats plus chicken and a bunch of sauces. And you can get like salsa verde or chimichurri. Mm. So, you know, they have a few sides that have, you know, potatoes and that kind of stuff. But I was able to get a spicy coleslaw on the side that had no sugar. Like I was just surprised at how awesomely ketogenic friendly this place was. Nice. Yeah. So I ended up eating there every night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love lamb breast. We we once went to our butcher and said, "Tell us uh, what meat cut you think is the best one that nobody knows about." And he said, "Lamb breast." So yeah. we got some of that. We took it home. We looked up on the web for some recipes for it. Oh, it's outstanding! It really is delicious. It's amazing. 
So I had a great week and, and, you know, still people are coming up to me and thanking me and you for, Mm. uh, quote unquote, saving their life. You know, the the keto thing is really spreading around. And now people who noticed last year, but weren't ready to commit, have done it and have lost the typical, you know, 40, 50 pounds and lowered their blood sugar to safe levels. It's incredible. Just, you know, one, one person after another is coming up. And saying that. So, I had a good week. Hmm, that sounds awesome. Oh, you were yeah. at a computer conference as well. So, I mean, most of the food there is likely carbs. Yeah. I mean, if there were things I could pick around, but I really didn't eat anything at the conference. Mm. Yeah. Well, Richard, I feel like giving away a coffee mug. Do you? Yeah, some loot. Let's do it. All right. And uh, every show, we like to give away a coffee mug or some other piece of swag to uh, mm-hmm. a lucky member picked at random of the two keto dudes fan club and you can join just by going to fanclub.twoketo.com answering a few questions and you're already in the running nice. so uh we just picked a name at random and it mm-hmm. is none other than glenn patricio congratulations glenn <laughs> yes congratulations glenn we'll be sending you a coffee mug that says keep calm and keto on with nice. our mugs on it yeah and if you don't want to wait to win a mug, uh, you can't wait to win the competition, um, you can always buy one at gear.2keto.com or you pick yourself yeah. up a T-shirt while you're there. Absolutely. Or a onesie, apparently. <laughs> or a onesie. <laughs> well, that brings us to... Mail! <laughs> oh, I love it. Somebody came up to me while I was doing .NET Rocks, uh, a, a live uh, panel discussion. Right. And came up to me and said, man, I'm waiting for you to yell, mail! <laughs> <laughs> well, at least he wasn't looking for recipes at a .NET Rocks uh, presentation. Yeah, that would have right. been weird. <laughs> yeah, and they probably wouldn't have been all that great. <laughs> Well, anyway. I'm going to go first. Sure. Okay, so this mail comes from the Ketogenic Forum, and this is from Bob, who says, interesting follow-up with my primary care. So he says, today I had my follow-up with my primary care physician. Uh, As an aside, the VA here at Fayetteville, North Carolina, has improved tremendously. So I give applause to them here. Smooth running machine. Thanks, guys. Mm. So Bob says, the nurse does a double take at the record. She looks at me. She looks at the page on her left. She looks at the page on her right, looks at me again, clears her throat, and has the biggest smile on her face as she says, it says here in August you had an A1C of 11.8%, and this test last week shows it's 5.8%. How? (laughs) And that, (laughs) that how was incorporated in with a bunch of stuttering and babbling for what felt like it was taking her forever to get out. It must have been about three or four seconds, really. She almost looked like she was going to get up and dance. She said it was remarkable. She'd never seen anything like it. She double-checked the records again to be sure they were correct. But then when she looked at my weight, she was amazed. She was comparing it to the reading in September, which was 245 pounds, and she says, wow, you've lost 40 pounds in four months. And I said, no, it was 40 pounds in two weeks. (laughs) With a much bigger smile than that. Well, I had her attention. She said she had to know, how is it possible to do this? So I didn't break it gently since she was asking me for it. So I hit it with both barrels. I replaced all my carbs with fat. I eat, well, I try to eat as close to zero carbs as possible. Her jaw dropped. Maybe I hit her a little too hard. After, <laughs> after a moment, she, sa- she asked if it was difficult. And I admitted the hardest part was giving up the addiction to carbs, which she admitted is her problems as well. 
She mm. says she's got to have her pizza. So I began to mention the foods that I now eat, steak, eggs, bacon, my 500-calorie coffee. My visit was no longer about my diabetes. It was about introducing her to keto, and I was fine wow. with that. She was slightly overweight, not nearly to the extent that I was, but um, was just this side of noticeable. Uh, but not so much that I would say she was fat, more like normal with a little extra. And she was eating up all the information. She had more patients to tend to, but I could tell she wanted more. She kept stalling and asking more. So I gave her Dr. Fung's name, a quick summary of the obesity code and the address to this forum, this ketogenic forum. Uh, hopefully she comes here and reclaims control of her sugar-dominated health. Uh, wow. He then goes on to say that his doctor comes in to talk to him, and that was a totally different experience. Yeah. So the, do the doctor looked over everything and said, okay, keep taking your BP meds, your statins, and the metformin. I told him I haven't been taking it since mid-November. <laughs> he said, okay, just don't discontinue them, as your blood sugar will spike really high, and that could harm you. I got really serious looking, so he would pay attention this time, as I told him the how and the why I discontinued it on my own, which prompted me to ask about the benefits of continuing it anyway for other reasons, such as, you know, if I take my metformin, will I reverse insulin resistance? And that I had never been taking statins ever. That was news to me that I was supposed to be taking those. This got his attention, caused him to open my records and look again, make sure he was looking at the right Johnson, and said, oh, I see. Very good job on lowering your A1C. You must be eating much healthier and exercising a lot now. <laughs> so I leveled with him <laughs> because I needed him to understand. I wanted to know if taking metformin could help with my insulin resistance. He refused to talk about it, said I needed to talk with my endocrinologist about that and that I should just continue taking my meds to prevent a sugar spike. <laughs> uh, That's crazy. That's <laughs> uh, incredible. So anyway, Bob says, look, I, I stood up, I shook his hand and said, thank you, Doc. It was at the most an underwhelming experience. I was prepared for some confrontation of some kind, but instead I was just re received with meh. At, at least the nurse got some interesting information to help her out. That, that by itself makes the entire day worth it. Wow. Well done. Yeah, well done. Well, well hopefully, I, I mean, if, if the nurse has come to join the forum or is listening to the podcast, welcome. Uh, we're glad to have you with us. Um, this is, we hear this all the time. All uh, the time. You know, sometimes doctors just don't have time. You know, if they have only five minutes to see you, uh, five minutes to analyze your charts and make a, a, a recommendation, they don't really have time to, to, to go into details. And, um, you know, it sounds like this was the case. The nurse probably had a little bit more time and also had a personal interest involved. And she was obviously paying attention to the HbA1c, which is an important number to pay attention to. Um, the doctor looked like he, he, he wasn't that interested in it. So hopefully Bob's endocrinologist will give him meaningful information about whether he should continue to take metformin for insulin resistance. My own experience is that um, when I stopped taking metformin to, to prove a point, my the amount of insulin that I had to make to keep my glucose in control went up. So that's yeah. just my own experience. Uh, but anyway, um, good luck with keeping calm and ketoing on, Bob. Yeah. Congratulations, Bob. That's great news. Yeah. So what have you got, Carl? Well, I'm going to read a five-star review that was left for Ooh. us on what we used to call iTunes, and now we call Apple Podcasts. Right. Right. And mm -hmm. that's what they call it anyway. But yeah. here it is. Before hearing of this podcast, I already knew about the ketogenic way of eating. I tried it for a few months previously, lost 40 pounds, 
and missed my pizza and lasagna, yeah. so I went back. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to August 2017. I was sent to the emergency room with blood sugar levels of 594. <gasps> wow. Ouch. Yeah. A life-threatening condition if left untreated. Absolutely. I didn't even know I had a problem. My A1C was 11.7. Wow. The doctor said, pay close attention to the nutritionist and what she has to say. Uh Uh-oh. The diet they wanted me in to manage my type 2 diabetes was basically the same way I had been eating for years, just with a few lower carbs. I was ecstatic. Living with diabetes is going to be easy. Yeah. They wanted me to eat between 45 and 60 grams of carbs per meal. Wow. Woot! I can do that. Yeah. I did less than that per day while on keto. Yeah. Well, my blood sugars did not improve. Even taking the max dosage of metformin had little effect, and I felt like I was doomed. Yeah, not kidding. Then I decided to go keto again. What did I have to lose? Sure. I can go nearly carb-free. I did it before. But can I with diabetes? Mm. That might complicate things. That led me to this podcast. These guys aren't exaggerating about what happens on keto. I went zero carb on 17 October 27, lost 40, yes, 40 pounds in two weeks. I felt great. This series of podcasts not only explains keto for the person who has never heard about it, but it also explains things in such a way that it will make doctors who have poo-pooed it reconsider what the medical establishment says. A keto diet should be the first thing attempted for someone diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, not drugs. Well, three weeks after starting keto, I gave up the meds. My blood sugar stayed perfectly normal without it. Keto is simply a way of life for me now. You wouldn't think about eating dirt out of your yard, would you? (laughs) No. Even though it has plenty of minerals? No. No reason to eat dirt. I feel the same way about carbs now. (laughs) I get everything I need on a keto diet. Plus, I'm burning my body fat, and I have not worried about my diabetes taking my feet or eyes or brain. Mm. The two keto dudes rock. If you're curious, want to know what this is all about, if you have diabetes, or just want to lose a dozen or a couple hundred pounds (laughs) and sit back and enjoy, you'll be amazed at the health benefits as well as the science behind ketosis. Wow. Thank you for the comment on uh, iTunes or Apple Podcasts, whatever they call it this week. But that's outstanding. And you know what's interesting? Both of those stories are very, very similar. I mean, they are. the first guy, Bob, his HbA1c was 11.8, and he lost 40 pounds in two weeks. And the second mm-hmm. guy, uh, his uh, HbA1c was 11.7, and, you know, he lost 40 pounds in two weeks as well. Two weeks, so yeah. It's, I mean, I didn't lose that much that quickly myself. Right. Overall, I lost 50 kilograms, you know, over four years, but um, yeah. but in the first three months, I probably lost 45 of those kilograms. So, yeah. you know, it's a common story that we're seeing and hearing yep. all over the place. Sure is. All right. Well, this is, uh, it's time for our interview and our, mm. our guest isn't here with us right now, but while I was here in London, I trekked out to Wales to the home of Zoe Harcombe. Nice. And we rang Richard up mm-hmm. on Skype and yep. recorded an interview with her, which we're going to do in two parts. That's why this is called Zoe Rocks Part One. Mm-hmm. So we're going to play the first half of our conversation with Zoe Harcombe right now. Could you say you're due for a little? 
Well, I am in Wales at the home of Dr. Zoe Harcombe. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Carl. How are you doing? I'm well. I'm well. And Richard is here. Well, I'm in Canberra, actually, Australia. But you're with us. You're with us, Richard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sure am. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, we're just going to have a little chat. So, I remember the first time I ever noticed Zoe Harcombe. Uh, she was tweeting, and I mean, lots of people in the low carb community tweet, and she was doing her submission for a PhD. And she tells this charming story about how she handed over her thesis, and the uh, committee who were uh, examining it handed it back to her, or the member of the committee handed it back to her and said, Thank you, Dr. Harkham. And that was the point she knew she'd passed. Oh, that uh. was a really nice day, actually. It's almost two years ago now. Yeah. So that was March the 4th, 2016. You just don't know. You just don't know how it's going to go. Um, so, you know, I had gone up so prepared because I was warned yeah. that, you know, the vivas are really tough. And I knew I had a lot of people in the viva because the first paper that had come out from the PhD was really controversial right. in the UK. I mean, it made global headlines. It ended up being the 64th <laughs> most impactful paper in the whole of 2015 Gee. across any discipline. Um, I got so horribly attacked by stupid trolls on Twitter and all the rest of it. I just learned how to use the block and mute buttons very effectively. (laughs) But, you know, at at various points, you know, without sort of, you know, going into people, um, my supervisor, um, I, you know, I had a number of supervisors and, you know, let's put it this way. Some were definitely more helpful than others. Um, and I remember at one point talking to Dr. Malcolm Kendrick about this Mm. and, you know, he said, well, the most likely thing is that, you know, somebody is being tapped on the shoulder saying, this is one of yours, you know, mature student or otherwise. Um, obviously I'm not, you know, the 18 year old student, um, you know, Mm -hmm. you need to keep them in tow kind of thing. Um, because I definitely found I got less help um, from particular directions after that paper had been published. Um, But I do have to particularly credit a guy called Professor Bruce Davies, um, who had retired and was the guy who originally persuaded me to do the PhD. And we'd come across each other talking about obesity at various functions in Wales. And Bruce had said, you know, you really should do a PhD. I just said, you know, I'm way too busy. Um, And he colluded with my (laughs) husband basically to arrange it. Um, And I then had no excuses. So, and he was my mentor throughout. So, you know, when people say, where did you do your PhD? I would probably say in a coffee shop in Cardiff because, you know, it was, it was Bruce mentoring me that, you know, got me through those years, um, you sure. know, of, of resistance as much within from outside. Um, so when you finally get to the Viva and you've got so many people in there because, you know, they really want to make sure this doesn't end up, you know, a controversial um, award or whatever. Yeah. I, I just didn't know how it was going to go. And, you know, when the guy said, you know, congratulations, Dr. Harkham, I just, you know, I think I sort of burst into tears or something actually or certainly welled up you know I'm welling up a little yeah. bit now actually just remembering it I mean it was just I just couldn't believe it you know I couldn't believe all that work had had, had come to what I wanted it to come to tell us about your dissertation so the dissertation basically asked the question were we right to introduce the dietary fat guidelines so the two dietary fat guidelines that we introduced were of course to have no more than 30% of our daily calorie intake in the form of total fat and to have no 
no more than 10% yeah. in the form of saturated fat. Those mm-hmm. are the two dietary fat guidelines introduced in the US in 1977. The UK followed suit in 1983. Other countries then largely followed suit and they have really not been changed in the last 40 or so years. So what I wanted to do was to examine the evidence base for those dietary guidelines in four parts to say, was the epidemiological evidence available at the time in 1977 and 83? Would it have approved the introduction of those guidelines? Better still, would the randomized controlled trial evidence have approved the introduction of those guidelines at the time? And then with the benefit of hindsight to bring it up to date and say, okay, if as was found, there was no evidence at the time, either RCT or epidemiological being as reasonable as we can be, let's look at the evidence that's now available um, or was available in 2015, 2016. Would it now substantiate those two dietary guidelines if they were being introduced today? And Mm. the evidence again said no. Um, So those four parts, then and now, RCTs and epidemiology. And what I also used, which made it um, even more novel and unique, was the modern method of systematic review and meta-analysis, which was just about available to the committee. The the first use of that term comes around about 1976. um, But you can largely say the American and the UK committees would not have been familiar with the concept Mm. of systematic review and meta-analysis, but we are today. So we can pool all the studies that were available at the time, but they didn't even reference most of the studies that were available at the time. You know, they referenced the seven country study Mm. and not five other epidemiological peer-reviewed studies that came to completely different conclusions. They may have referenced the mental health study in Finland, which was not randomized, not controlled, and yet they didn't reference the randomized control trials that were available. So they were so selective with their so-called review of the evidence and seemingly picked off what they wanted to conclude rather than what all the evidence considered objectively would have concluded. And of course, the consequences have been catastrophic. Didn't Ansel Keys actually uh, come out in suggest that maybe he was wrong about his hypothesis and by then the ship had already sailed? I do think that that in our field, Ansel Keys is quite often unfairly treated. Now, we need to remember that he was a he was a brilliant scientist. You know, he did some things wrong, but he started out doing things right. So, you know, he was the man who gave us the Minnesota starvation experiment from 1945, which is probably still the most definitive experiment that we've got on low calorie calorie deficit dieting and its catastrophic consequences and what happens when people stop a low calorie diet and how they tend to regain the weight and more. That was a brilliant study. You can't take that away from the guy. Um, the seven countries study was also a brilliant study and to be fair to the guy he went into the seven countries study thinking that total fat was associated with heart disease because he had people confuse the six countries graph I've got this clarified on my blog if anyone wants to go to zoeharkham.com and see the clarity the six countries graph that came from a presentation that he did in 1953 at the Mount Sinai hospital where he famously put 
put up data for six countries that showed a strong relationship between heart disease in middle-aged men and the total fat intake in the diets of those middle-aged men. Um, and then, of course, he was highly criticised. Hilly Bowen Yerushalmi came out in 1957 and said, well, actually, there were data available for 22 countries that you didn't include. And if you had have included all of that, it would look a little bit different. Not entirely different, but it would certainly not give rise to that conclusion. That's the one naughty thing that I think he did. And scientifically, that was lacking in integrity and it let him down. It did him no credit because he was better than that. So he went into the seven countries study thinking that total fat caused heart disease or was at least associated with. And to be fair to him again, he concluded at the end of the seven countries study, and this is not widely known, that total fat was absolutely not even associated with coronary heart disease or deaths from coronary heart disease. What he did think then was that saturated fat was associated with deaths from coronary heart disease. But again, when you look at that one study, in among the peer studies in Honolulu and, of course, the Framingham study and the London Bus and um, Bankmen study, none of them found any association with saturated fat and heart disease. And yet this one study that did find this association, it found far more interesting associations, let me tell you, um, but the fact that it even found an association with saturated fat, despite it bucking the trend of all the other studies at the time, we seem to put inordinate weight on this one study quite unfairly in amongst its peers. That wasn't entirely Ansel Keys's fault. And yes, he probably did try to backpedal a little bit because I do believe at heart he was a genuine scientist. I think he just did one bad thing in 1953 and he probably regretted it. I think they did a study, or he did a study, the Minnesota coronary experiment to try and prove uh, his hypothesis um, and it falsified his hypothesis and, and uh, whether he was involved or not, that was the, the, the information from that was certainly... Um, uh, hidden for many, many years. I think eight, Nina Teichel says something like 18 years before the paper was actually published in a small little-known journal or something. You make a very good point, and you've just reminded me he might have done two bad things. <laughs> um, and there may even be more bad things, because you are quite right. The, um, he was the, a naughty the, man. <laughs> I'm just trying to be academically fair here, but yeah, that's two bad things now. That kind of sets a trend. Yeah, um, yeah so the Minnesota Coronary Study, where they gave these um, men, you know, basically this terrible diet, uh, you know, very low in saturated fat and pretty high in, Horrible. you know, fake alternatives. Um, and, and they yeah. really didn't do very well. Um, you know, it didn't quite prove that the, you know, fake alternatives were going to kill you, but it certainly didn't say that they were going to help in any way. Mm. Um, and then you are very right. It was published way later than it should have been. And it was published in a um, journal that, you know, was nowhere near as esteemed as the usual publications that, you know, he could walk into circulation or, you know, the Lancet sure. or the BMJ. I mean, he could publish anywhere he wants. Mm. You know, so why did he publish it in, I forget what it was, you know, it's sort of, you know, the Minnesota Journal of Cardiology or something. <laughs> Nina was absolutely right on that one. You know, too late, um, too obscure, not really being fair. And I think she'd interviewed someone in the Big Fat Surprise and asked, you know, why did this happen? Right. And the comment she got back was, well, it didn't quite say, you know, what we hoped it would say. Yeah, right. That's bad science. That's, That's naughty. Good. 
So, okay, we got two now. Are we going to get a third <laughs> somewhere that he did that was really yeah. bad? We just weren't happy with the results. Okay, here's the third bad thing. So he moved to the Mediterranean. <laughs> he did live to over 100. You know, let's credit him with that. But he moved to the Mediterranean. And then, of course, he was this massive proponent of this fictitious Mediterranean diet that is absolutely right. not what people in the Mediterranean actually eat. And, you know, he didn't sort of go to great lengths to point out, actually... You know, the reason I'm living in the Mediterranean is because I've observed people live very long in the Mediterranean. And that might not be because of what they eat. You know, it might be because no. it's just the most glorious place on earth. The pace of life is, you know, sedentary, but the activity is actually quite high because they were still working in the fields at that point. You know, they still walk to work in the morning, wherever that work may be. They cycle around villages. The sun shines virtually every day of the year. Vitamin um, D. Yeah. Oh, Lots of wine. Absolutely vitamin D. You know, the... <laughs> I go to the Mediterranean, you know, if if I can, once a year for a summer holiday. And I am so happy in those seven days. It's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, waking up every morning and you see the sea sparkling and the sky is just as blue as blue can be. And they don't eat what dietitians tell you they eat in the med. You know, the basic principle <laughs> of the Mediterranean diet is if it moves, eat it. Mm. You know, they eat red right. meat more than white meat. They eat masses of dairy. But put some garlic on it. First. Yeah, they love garlic, they love <laughs> onions, they love tomatoes, they love fish, they love vegetables, they love stuff in season, and a lot of stuff is in season a lot of the year. They mm. love fruit, um, they have cream-based desserts rather than wheat-based desserts. Mm. Sure, they have some mm. white things, you know, they do not eat whole grains, they eat white bread, white pasta, white rice, and if they eat a lot of it, they end up really, really fat, like the Italian women in mafia movies, and if they <laughs> yeah. don't eat a lot of it, they end up really, really slim, like Sophia Loren. Like Sophia her Loren. <laughs> yeah. So it, it takes your choice. You eat the animal foods without the white stuff mm -hmm. and you stay slim and live long and gorgeous or you eat the animal foods with the white stuff and you probably will get a bit porky. So speaking of white yeah. stuff, a family member um, now famously sent me an email with uh, a quote from a Harvard uh, scientist or professor who said something along the lines of there's no definitive evidence that sugar causes type 2 diabetes. And I wonder, do we need definitive evidence when we know the biological mechanisms by which uh, carbohydrates and sugar in particular uh, turn into high blood glucose levels, which leads to insulin resistance, and insulin resistance over time given enough time to develop, will lead to type 2 diabetes. If you know those mechanisms, do we really need to make a bunch of people diabetic in an RCT to, to, to get that quote-unquote definitive evidence? The short answer is no. Um, we know that diabetes type 2 is essentially a disease of carbohydrate metabolism, the inability to metabolize carbohydrate. The ultimate empty carbohydrate is sucrose, sugar, so it surely should be the first one that we give up. Um, people then should consider giving up more of the carbohydrate range because other simple sugars are really not going to help either. Um, you know, whether that's glucose, um, fructose, um, galactose, or, you know, combinations thereof, sucrose, which of course is 50-50 glucose and fructose. Um, one of the things I get most attacked for on Twitter is, you know, when I dare to point out that fruit is essentially sugar. 
Um, and fruit is varying combinations of fructose and glucose. Sucrose just happens to be the perfect 50-50. Some fruit will be higher in fructose and glucose and some fruit will be higher in glucose and fructose, but it's still not far away from the 50-50. And to the body, the sugar coming from fruit or the sugar coming from the sugar bowl is essentially the same thing. And the body has to try and handle it in the same way. And I think type 2 diabetes to me is the body basically saying, you're giving me too much carbohydrate too often and I just can't take it anymore. You know, I've got this finely tuned, brilliant mechanism called the pancreas, which will put sugar into the bloodstream when you need it and it will take sugar out of the bloodstream when you need me to do that because your blood sugar level should be meticulously controlled. But you, dear human host, are just chucking in <laughs> carbs for breakfast and then you have a muffin and then you have an apple and then you have a sandwich and then you have a bag of crisps and then you have something in the afternoon <laughs> and then you have pasta for dinner and then you go on some crazy carb binge in the evening and you do that day in, day out. And you're expecting me, this brilliant mechanism, <laughs> to handle all of that on a regular basis. Guys, I, just enough's enough. Mm. Type 2 diabetes to me is the body saying enough's enough. No more carbohydrate. I think possibly the type 2 diabetic diet that's recommended uh, may be the low-hanging fruit in this area because I know when I was diagnosed with diabetes, I switched from uh, from a standard Australian diet, similar to a standard American diet, to the diet that I was told to eat and I only got worse. <laughs> and when I went back after learning about keto uh, and I went back and analysed the diet, they were feeding me 300 plus grams of glucose per day yeah, yeah. for somebody for whom the only differential diagnosis that they had was that I was unable to process glucose safely. It is criminal, isn't it? I mean, this is why I love the work of Dr. David Unwin so much. Um, he's a doctor in the UK who has been treating his diabetic patients, um, type 2 particularly, with a change in diet. And to his absolute credit, he discovered this new way of eating with a patient walking into him and he did a double take as this woman walked in and said, oh my goodness, what have you done? Last time I saw you, you were way heavier. You look fantastic. Your glucose is fantastic. What have you done? And she said, doc, you're not going to be happy. When I tell you what I've done, you're going to give me a row. And he said, go and try me. So she said, you know, I have pretty much slashed my carbohydrate intake. I don't have fruit and toast for breakfast. I don't have orange juice. I'm having bacon and eggs. And, you know, and bacon he and went eggs. away and he researched it and he said, you know what, there might be something in there. And he now says to patients, I, I was speaking at a conference with him in Switzerland last November, and he said this really powerful thing to a member of the audience who was wondering, you know, could we do this as doctors? Was it, you know, it was, it was a, a conference of doctors and chief medical officers from around the world. And they were questioning whether people would choose to do it, whether they would stick to it, whether it's sustainable. And David said, I, since discovering this, every patient who I've diagnosed with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, I have said there are a couple of ways we can now go. We can go down the lifelong medication route and you'll probably need more meds over time and we'll see how that goes. Or there is a very promising new pathway, which is looking at diet. And I give you a diet sheet, you stick to the diet sheet, we probably won't need meds, you will probably lose weight, you will probably feel less hungry, and you will probably feel better. And your which, diabetes will probably go away. And your diabetes will probably go into remission. Which do you want to choose? And he said, to this date, <laughs> not one single person has said, oh, doc, just give me the meds. Yeah. You know, I want the right. crisps and the chocolate and the cakes, you know, just give me the meds. 
um, people don't want to take meds on a daily basis. And the smart people also realize that you will develop a tolerance to meds. And then it's a slippery slope from meds to insulin to amputations and to premature deaths. And there's enough in the media about that now that people are wisening up to it. And you could have had bacon and eggs every day. Exactly. It's not such a hardship. It's not hard. Yeah. And then you won't be hungry until lunchtime or maybe even dinner time. You know, you may find yourself skipping a meal just because you didn't need a meal. You know, some crazy Mm. things are going to start happening. Um, and, and, and that's the work that he's done. And he's published some great papers with really simple diet sheets showing the results that he's had in his tens is, you know, it's now heading into over a hundred patients that he and his wife, Jen have personally treated in their own little practice in England. It's fantastic. And he's sharing this information with other uh, practitioners now, isn't he? He is indeed. So that's the important thing. Yep. He is. um, He speaks regularly at conferences. Um, As I say, his papers are openly available and his papers alone could be read by another doctor and the doctor would immediately know what they could do with their patients. Um, He's been on TV in the UK a couple of times. Um, He's a fabulous guy. He's got the most lovely bedside manner. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one person at a time, he's, he's changing lives over here. And I think of people like Dr. Westman, who has treated some 4,000 patients in the last 10 years um, uh, with a complete success rate, more or less, uh, just by, you know, telling them to eat bacon and eggs and, you know, take the carbohydrates out of your diet and all the diabetes goes into remission. I mean, of all the people that I've talked to, I think he's got the most patients. Who was that, sorry? Dr. Eric Westman. Oh, yes, of course. He's been doing it the longest. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Eric, of course, rewrote the um, the sort of coming again of the Atkins book. So, you know, Atkins revisited or revolution, whatever it was. And, of course, it was then Dr. Eric Westman and his book and his writing that was the thing that first came to the attention of Professor Tim Noakes. Mm -hmm. Um, And Professor Tim Noakes, Mm. you know, picked up that Atkins revolution when he himself was struggling with energy, with increasing weight around his middle, Mm. despite the fact that he was doing extreme exercise you know marathons ultra marathons and the rest of it and he read the book and he got to the end and he just said you know on the one level this is the craziest thing i've ever read (laughs) and on the other level this is the most sensible thing i have ever read and of course as a a1 rated scientist brilliant academic that he is he went away to investigate and he's never looked back yeah and that brings us to the next uh part of your story which which is your first south african adventure which is as a freshly minted PhD, you went to the conference in Cape Town, right? Yeah, I wasn't actually a PhD then, actually. The, the, the first paper, oh. yeah, the first paper had just been published. Um, so that was February right. 2015, literally the week before we went out to South Africa. The timing wasn't engineered, but it, it almost couldn't have been better. Um, so, you know, so mm. I turned up in South Africa with my heroes. You know, Gary Tobes was there. Um, yeah. Professor Tim Noakes was there. Eric was there. Jay um, Wartman. Um, Stephen Finney. Um, I didn't know Jason at the time. You know, Jason has since become one of mm-hmm. my heroes. Um, but, you know, I, yeah. I remember turning up thinking, you know, crikey, how <laughs> how am I okay to be among this esteemed group of people? You know, I was truly humbled. Yeah. Um, and then thanks, I guess, to that paper, you know, as I sort of turned up, hi, I'm Zoe. Everyone was like, oh, great paper. Loved your paper. <laughs> and and I, yeah. I, it almost sort of made me feel, okay, I'm, I'm all right being here. I'm not a doctor yet, but, you know, I'm, I'm on the right path, hopefully. So I really enjoyed that conference. It was, you were on the dream team of the, 
of Tim Nilkes' trial. Yeah, and I would have been completely unknown to Tim at the, the time of turning up at the Cape Town conference because, of course, it was Karen Thompson who organized it. Um, because sure. unbeknown to us at the time, something had been happening in the background. So there was this crazy tweet exchange back in February 2014. Mm -hmm. And then uh, various other things happened over 2014. But it wasn't until early 2015 that the prof was told that he was going to be charged with medical misconduct or whatever nonsense they were going to charge him with. Right. So during all of this hanging over him, even before knowing he was going to be charged, Karen had said, look, you know, this is um, my grandfather's best friend. You know, I'm, I'm going to show him that he's not alone. I've seen these people on Twitter. There are loads of people out there saying the same thing. You know, he's not alone. Let's get a conference together. And it was entirely Karen who pulled all of that together. Wow. So Tim had no idea who I was. She was the granddaughter of Christian Bernard. Is that correct? Yep, absolutely. Granddaughter of Christian Bernard, of course, the person who first um, performed the heart transplant, um, had been an academic um, and then sort of medical research um, peer of Tim. So, you know, the, the two of them had, had come to know each other for a long time. And, you know, I think Tim would view Karen as, as just like one of his own granddaughters. Um, you know, they have a wonderful relationship. Um, so, so Karen had sort of arranged all of this. Tim had no idea who I was. Um, but I, you know, I, I knew that some of the things that I was putting up, I... I like to go to the heart of nutrition. So, you know, when I was sort of saying things like, um, you know, all foods that contain fat contain all three fats. Um, mm, right. not, not many people seem to know that, you know, dietitians, public health advisors seem to think that there are foods that exist that only contain unsaturated fats and that you can completely avoid saturated fat without dying. You know, I mean, it just right. shows their complete and utter ignorance. Zoe, there is actually one exception to that. Um, acetic acid is a saturated fat and it's only a saturated fat but it's not a lipid it's a water soluble saturated fat yeah you wouldn't call vinegar, that a food yeah. though would you i mean i'm sure you can come <laughs> up with with all kinds of stuff in the lab you know you can isolate all of the sure, fats but sure. when it yeah. comes to food yeah. when it comes to things we actually put in our mouth you know i'd, I'd love That's these true. dietitians to tell us you know what is it we're supposed to be eating right um and you know i i was chucking out things in my presentation and tim was in the front row and he's a really tall guy mm. and i could just see him nodding all the way through and it was so encouraging <laughs> it, he's such a great active listener so i'm chucking out things like you know olive oil has got seven times the total fat of a you know sirloin steak or whatever i mean i was just throwing out these things on saturated fat and total <laughs> fat and you could just see you know and you know oily fish is got more total fat and more saturated fat than red meat but they tell us to eat one and not the other yeah, and yeah. he just seemed to love these and a number of them actually then <laughs> appeared in raising superheroes which was his follow-up book in fact one of my tables yeah. from one of my presentations in south africa actually appeared in in the raising superheroes so i was thrilled to bits um and then i guess tim became aware that every week i blog and i take apart um, you know, the latest nonsense that's come out from Harvard or the latest really good stuff that's come out from, you know, the BMJ or BGSM or Lancet. Um, and he kind sure. of got to know me then. And then he approached me in, crikey, when was it? Summer of 2016 to say it has come to our attention that a particular paper written by people at all of my universities that don't like me, that are out to get me, Stellenbosch, Cape Town, they've collaborated to write this study 
on uh, they th- they claim they've done a meta analysis of low fat versus low carb diets and that basically you know there's no evidence for the low carb diet and they're using that effectively to put me on trial incredible hmm. he said i know that you like dissecting stuff like this can you take a look at this paper and let me know if there's anything wrong with it and it was so yeah. exciting mm, you know yeah, i mean right. you know the the, <laughs> the, 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 the the carrot of you know is there something wrong with this <laughs> and i remember getting back to him within a couple of days to say tim it's not is there something wrong with it it's you know can i find anything right with it and he's like <laughs> oh so write it write write something write something get back to me as fast as you can so i literally worked as fast as i could and i sent back to him and it's like this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong this is wrong he's like we've got to do a paper <laughs> so we then did a paper we got it submitted to the south african medical journal he then of course says you've got to come and be one of my expert witnesses at right. my trial because sure. you, this is going to be on on you know major ticket item on the trial and you can do all of your phd stuff as well but you know we we want to put this nordia trial back on trial um so i then rearranged my holiday and said okay we're going to come to cape town instead and you know have two weeks being at this unbelievable experience of the trial and we knew at that point that the paper was going to be published in the samj shortly after the trial so we knew we could put it on the public record and talk about it Mm -hmm. and it was so funny because one of the authors on the paper was actually in the courtroom during the trial and during these trials just shows you how lazy the opposition were because we were so prepared on the defense team And all papers that are going to be used in the trial by both sides have to go to the other side about a week before the trial even starts. So you all know what is going to come up. There's no surprises. It's called discovery, I think, isn't it? Exactly. Discovery. So we read Mm. every single word of what they were going to present. And they still chucked in some stuff, you know, that they hadn't declared. And we let it pass most Mm -hmm. of the time. Mm -hmm. But they had all of this stuff before... Tim went on the stand before I went on the stand and they clearly hadn't read any of it. Really? And at the point I started talking about this trial, you could just see them running around like startled rabbits in the courtroom. Like, how do we not know about this? You know, we know, Madam Chair, we need a halt to proceedings. You know, this is, this is new. And, you know, Adam Pikester, Tim's fabulous lawyer was jumping up going, yeah. it's not new. See page 2,900 <laughs> or whatever. It was just so funny. I mean, it was like being in an episode of LA Law for two say, weeks. I was going to say, that would make a hell of a movie wouldn't it who did you have to convince was there a jury was it just the judge was there i mean and what were their credentials were they qualified to to hear and make a judgment well that was the funniest thing so they had the first hearing if i'm remembering all of this off the top of my head right i think the first hearing was july 2015 and they had to abort it because they couldn't even follow their own rules so let's remember who you're up against at the moment so hbcsaa is the health professions council of south africa and they're effectively the body that represents health professionals whether they're dietitians doctors surgeons Hmm. whatever health professionals in south africa are represented by this body and so they have their own um, set of rules, their own protocol that says if somebody's suspected of being, bringing their profession, their particular profession into disrepute, then the HPCSA can decide to charge that professional in effect on behalf of all other professionals. And these are the circumstances in you know, which the person can be charged. And you know they couldn't even follow their own rules because mm. it said the person on trial has to be charged by um, or has to be uh, overviewed by a panel of their peers 
at least one of whom has to be in the same discipline and they all have to be proper peers. Well, of course, they stacked the first panel with dietitians because the complainant was a dietitian. And dietitians are the ones, let's face it, who are really miffed with Professor Tim Noakes because he's making them look like fools because he's getting great results. He's super slim and healthy looking himself and he's getting good results with all of his patients and he's not following their high carb, low fat dietary advice. So they don't like him. Let's let's make no mistake. They really don't like him. Um, And it looks like this whole trial was a setup, um, which shouldn't come to a surprise of anyone. Mm. Um, So there's a chair who is one of a member of a panel of six people. So you could have a split panel, but the chair would then have the casting vote. Um, Mm. As it happened, five people found the prof completely exonerated on all 10 counts that they were asked to consider. Hmm. Um, And the other guy, none of us could quite fathom how he had come to the conclusions that he did because it was actually not possible to even conclude that there was a doctor-patient relationship between the prof and this random unknown woman on Twitter. Yeah. Um, when, you know, he hadn't agreed that she was his patient and she hadn't agreed that he was his doctor. So they failed their own standard of what constitutes a doctor but this poor chap obviously didn't quite work out the nuances of the trial Hmm. um and he was the one who said you know i think he's guilty but uh at the end of it it came to nothing but of course they are appealing because you know they won't let it go but they um, this, still haven't told you what, uh, why they're appealing. No, right? they haven't. No. So the, the final verdict was delivered on the 21st of April, 2017. They were allowed that HBCSA then had 21 days to appeal. They came in on day 21 and said, we are going to appeal, but they didn't say why they're going to appeal. Mm. And to this day, we still don't know why they're appealing, mm-hmm. but we understand that at some point they still plan to hold an appeal. But remember, that verdict was never supposed to happen because they are the judge. They are the jury. They appoint mm-hmm. the judge. They appoint the panel. Mm-hmm. You know, they are never supposed to fail in any prosecution that they choose to bring because all the odds are in their favor. This just wasn't supposed to happen. But they presupposed the verdict, didn't they? <laughs> yeah. So it, it wasn't televised, the whole thing. But Marika Saboros is just a master wizard. <laughs> At putting in 140 characters, I know. every nuance that was happening in the room. And so all across the world, we are watching Marika's Twitter feed to, to follow this. And and at one point, they, they, they claimed that Prof was guilty before even the summation arguments had happened. I'll try and remember my dates now. I mean, I, I should be able to remember them accurately. Okay, so the trial finished on, it was definitely a Wednesday, about 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the 26th of October 2017 and I was with the prof and his delightful wife Marilyn on Friday of that week which should have been the 28th of October and 2016 I think uh, 2016 yes thank you yes so the yeah crikey lost a year then yeah of course the verdict was 2017 (laughs) so on Friday the 28th of October 2016 we were with the prof having a lovely lunch in Stellenbosch um, and Adam Pikester, his lawyer, phoned up and said, you're not going to believe this, Tim. Um, I'm sending you something by email. Open it up, read it. And Tim sort of read it out loud to us. And he's just like, they found me guilty. <laughs> and at the end of the session on Wednesday, 
the judge had said, right, we're going to meet as a panel the first week in April 2017. We will then deliberate on these dates and we will then deliver the verdict. We will. You know, she committed to it on the 21st of April 2017. That's what's going to happen. And yet the HPCSA, like, no, we won't bother with deliberations next year. Let's just announce <laughs> him guilty now, which, of course, spectacularly backfired. Because as yeah. you say, Marika oh, spotted yeah. it, alerted Adam. Mm. Marika and then Adam then alerted chair joan adams who was apoplectic because oh she would be yeah mm. it completely undermined her authority and her integrity um and it was withdrawn within about two hours um <laughs> but not before you know i was with the prof and jake white you know the the legendary coach was sort of you know phoning up and texting saying oh prof i'm really sorry to hear this and you know <laughs> tim was going back jake don't worry mate don't worry thanks for the call buddy yeah. but <laughs> don't worry i mean you know the number of people that, that tim yeah. must have in his address book that would be a a good mobile to steal i tell <laughs> sure. you he, he knows the who's who of the elite sporting world and they were all saying tim we love you what's going on so uh, that was quite funny so a lot of our listeners uh, and I had this experience as well, have had doctors who are afraid of losing their license uh, and therefore won't recommend lower-carb diets and high-fat diets especially. And my doctor looked right at me and said, you know, I can't recommend this diet because if, if there's one ancillary heart attack, yeah. I could lose my license, which is complete <sighs> BS, first of all. But second, it just shows you the fear that these doctors yeah. have. And then I look at doctors like, you know, Dr. Westman, Ted Naiman, and uh, Jeff Gerber, and, and all these guys who are just out there doing it and, and, you know, reversing their patient's diabetes and not having problems. And I wonder, you know, have any doctors approached you about, hey, if I get sued, will you come, you know, uh, represent me in court or be a witness at my trial? They haven't asked that, but I have been approached by a lot of doctors who say, I've come across what you're doing. I follow you on Twitter. I read your blog. Um, I read your book and say, how can we get this out there? You know, how they're determined to help their patients. Right. Um, you know, so how can we, how can we do more to get this out there? You know, they want to be the next David Unwin, the next Eric Westman, right. the next bold doctor. Um, but isn't it just criminal that when there is no evidence for the current dietary guidelines, there just is no evidence for right. those guidelines. And yet there is simultaneously this system that says, okay, but if you follow those guidelines, you won't get sued if yes. something untoward happens. Gary Tobe said this in Good Calories, Bad Calories. He said, you know, you just can't advise anything other than a low-fat diet because to do so would just be to risk your profession, your medical license, to end up in exactly the same kind of place as Tim. And who on earth would want to go through that for four years? Right. And yet we know when we see the results that we can help people so much more by ignoring what is supposed to be good advice. It's just crazy. And his trial sets a precedent, doesn't it? That if, if somebody sues you, you're not going to go to jail. You're not going to lose your license. I mean, the evidence is on your side. I'm it? still curious to see what the end outcome will be in this whole trial because of the South African system, because of the HPCSA holding all the cards. Mm. It would not surprise me if at some point they find some way of taking away 
the prof's license, despite the fact he doesn't even practice and yeah, hasn't practiced for many years. I still think that this is so important to dietitians and people dishing out the conventional advice that they will do whatever it takes to find a way to be seen to justify their own advice. They just yeah. won't let it go. It's obsessive. Mm. Get over it, guys. Mm. Ship a sail. <laughs> yeah. Move on, you know. Have a steak. Yeah. <laughs> I think part of the answer to this, because we really have a diabetes epidemic that's coming crashing on our shores right now. It's a tsunami. And I think part of the answer to this is not to attack this from the top down, but from the bottom up and, and, and really do, do what Tim's doing with his, with his banting book, helping people change their own lives and then turn around and change the lives of their loved ones. And eventually the dietitians are just, just going to run out of clients. Yeah, <laughs> Wouldn't that be right. lovely? I mean, I do think, you know, the reputation of dietitians is being seriously harmed mm -hmm. worldwide. Um, and, you know, Every now and again, you might see something saying, oh, you know, we've been advising low carb diets, you know, for like five minutes <laughs> or whatever. Right. And then yeah, you sure go you and, have. yeah, and then you go and look at the sort of the paper they're referring to. And it might be, um, oh, you know, you might be able to go as low as 45% carbohydrates. Mm, like, right. oh, guys, you know, when you actually publish a paper that said, you know what, for the best thing you could do for type 2 diabetes, if not type 1 as well, is to get your carb intake as low as you personally can stick to and enjoy. And, you know, eating is is holistic. It's about sociability. It's about enjoyment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if 75 grams works for you, great. If 25 grams works for you, maybe even better. But, you know, the day they come out with something at that kind of level, okay, is the day I might say, finally, you've turned the tide. But don't whatever you do, try and claim you got there first, because yeah. I will just <laughs> fall over myself laughing. Right. Excuse me. <laughs> well, Zoe, we're running out of time for this episode, but we want to continue talking. So we'll just extend this to the next episode of Two Keto Dudes. So thank you for sharing with us. Oh, pleasure. Look forward to the next one. Okay. Wow, that was that was just great. Zoe is such a rock star, isn't she? <laughs> I didn't get what Zoe does until I talked to her. That yeah. she just loves picking apart science and picking yeah. apart studies and the news that comes out and helping us make sense of it. That's what she does. Yeah, that is. And she's very good at it. Yeah, very good at it. Well, are you hungry? I'm hungry. I think it's time for some recipes. <laughs> Probably some tapas recipes because it's January right. and this year we're doing appetizers and the whole of January we're doing Spanish tapas. And what's great about tapas and small plates in general, which mm. we're doing all year, is that small plates are very suited to keto because we typically don't eat as much as we used to. Right, yeah. And so making lots of little small plates sometimes allows you to uh, manage how much you eat a lot easier. It's certainly great for judging satiety because, you know, if you have five little small plates and you have a, you know, you have a bite out of one plate and then you move to the next one and maybe you start to get satiated already, um, yeah. you know, you can put all the plates back in the fridge and, Bring them out yep. as soon as you get hungry again. So, yeah, it works really well. Exactly. All right, so I'll go first. Mm. So what do you got? I've got keto tapas meatballs. Nice. So oven-baked braised meatballs are a staple of tapas. Mm. Typically, you want to make them in an earthenware pot with some sort of sauce that's a little bit fragrant. Mm -hmm. And then you take them out and you serve them one at a time, usually in a little ramekin or on a big spoon. You know, those right. Chinese spoons are perfect for serving yeah, tapas. Yeah. Like, 
The porcelain ones, yeah, yeah. Porcelain ones, yeah. Mm. But I use little ramekins and that's mm-hmm. just fine. So for the meatballs, you're going to use uh, 750 grams of minced beef, veal, and pork mix. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's your basic meatball mix, equal parts ground beef, veal, and pork. Mm-hmm. You can use just beef and pork. You can use just beef. It doesn't matter. You know, yeah. you're, you're making meatballs. Mm-hmm. Uh, crushed garlic, three cloves worth, mm-hmm. a medium egg, three ounces of crushed pork rinds. That gives it that binding. Yeah. And the thing that, for me, softens meatballs is oil. So I'm adding two tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil to the mix, and then about a half a teaspoon of salt. And you may or may not want more salt, but, uh, you know, for us, salt is good. And uh, I've never <laughs> I've never complained that food was too salty since I went keto. Isn't that neat? <laughs> well, I, one interesting thing I've noticed about uh, beef mints and pork mints and veal mints is that the, the massive variation in uh, fat content. And mm. so, I mean, here in Australia, the fat in uh, minced beef goes from 2% fat to 17% fat. So wow. if you can only get the lean versions, then you might have to add a little bit of extra virgin oil. Okay, so we're going to make a sauce. Mm-hmm. So you need for that a quarter of a cup of extra virgin olive oil, right. a small onion or a half an onion chopped finely. You don't want too many onions. Mm. Uh, two tablespoons of dried chili peppers, and I like to use ancho chilies. Okay. And you can get those at any Spanish or Mexican uh, store. They're dried ancho chilies. They're not really spicy. A lot. They, they have a little bit of heat, but they've got a lot of flavor. Mm, nice. So you want to chop those up nicely. Mm-hmm. Uh, a tablespoon of cumin or cumin seed. If you want to toast the cumin seed, that also works mm, really well. Yeah. Bring out the oils. Mm-hmm. Um, 250 milliliters of low-carb tomato sauce. Now, that could be rouse or homemade sauce or if yeah. you want to use uh, tomato paste. That generally has less carbs per tablespoon, and it's thicker, too, so you don't need as much of it. Sure. Um, a large sprig of tarragon, and this is mm-hmm. a trick that I learned from Daddy Jack, okay. who uses tarragon in his spaghetti pizza sauce, whatever, right. his tomato sauce, and oh my God, it, it makes such a big difference, and of course, it works great with tapas. Yeah, yeah. So tarragon's got that aniseed sort of flavor to it, doesn't it? Yeah, mm. right. A quarter of a cup of dry red wine. Mm-hmm. And if you really want the Spanish experience, get some Rioja. Yeah, yep. Uh, salt and pepper to taste. So, you want to preheat the oven to about 300 Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. And that's about what? Celsius? Yeah, that's about 150 uh, Celsius. Awesome. And you want to combine all the meatball ingredients and just mix them up thoroughly. Mm-hmm. Shape them into balls. You know, no big whoop. So you chop the onion and peppers into very small bits. And when you're chopping the dried peppers, you want to probably take out the seeds. Okay. And it's going to be crispy and dry. So just uh, you want to separate that well on your cutting board. Sure. Yeah. So you're going to fry that in olive oil over medium heat until the onions are translucent and the peppers are soft. Sure. You know, maybe five or six minutes. Mm -hmm. You want to add the cumin and chopped tarragon and stir to combine those for a little bit. Now, you want to add the wine and allow that to burn off a little while stirring for another two minutes. And probably you, you might want to turn the heat up to just sort of evaporate some of that wine a bit. Mm. But it only takes about two minutes. Then you can bring it back down to medium heat. Add your tomato, whatever it is, puree, paste. Mm-hmm. Thoroughly combine that. And, you know, while you're doing it, you're going to know, like, how much is enough, how much is too much. You can just add a little bit, taste it, add a little bit, taste it. 
it, it can be overwhelming. So, you know, just be careful. Check it out. Try it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you want to salt and pepper that according to taste. So then in your earthenware pot, put about half the sauce in the bottom and layer in the meatballs. And then you cover the meatballs with the remaining sauce. Put the cover on. Bake that for about 30 minutes. And you want to open the pot and rotate the meatballs. Maybe cook for another 10, 15 minutes. And then you serve them hot, as I said. In a ramekin, you put a little sauce in the bottom. Put the meatball on there, and uh, there you go. Just serve it with a fork. Mm, nice. Delicious. Yeah. I actually yeah. had some of those tonight, believe it or not. So You uh, did? Yeah, I did. I did. And they were delicious. Absolutely. And was your recipe pretty close to mine? Uh, almost identical. What I didn't do was I didn't have onions, uh, but I certainly yeah. had peppers uh, and garlic. Uh, and I think I had a little bit less... Uh, Mints, uh, and I made 16 meatballs. Um, so, you know, I'm going to be eating that for a while. Oh, it's awesome. Nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I love Spanish tapas meatballs. Absolutely yep. delicious. Good recipe. Thank you. So I've got a couple of recipes, but I'm, I'm going to give you one this week, but I'm going to tease one of the recipes that is going to be coming up, and that is <laughs> churros with chocolate sauce. Churros. Churros, which I had for dinner tonight. <laughs> and if you go to ketogenic forums to what did I eat today, uh, you'll actually see a post of, uh, of my churros in there. But So the recipe is upcoming. It's sort of like a tease to, to get you to listen to the next nice. podcast. But today we're going to do a very simple one. Uh, and this one is uh, basically ham, cheese, and olives and uh, on a stick. Beautiful. So, yeah, so what I do is I... I get some manchego, which is a sheep's milk cheese. It's quite hard. And so I start off with a wedge of the cheese, and I use a mandolin to do a very thin slice. So it's a very thin triangular slice with a little bit of the rind at one end. You can eat the rind of the manchego cheese. It's actually quite tasty. Um, So I start with a very thin slice. It ends up being about six grams of of cheese. And then around that slice, I'm going to get some jamón iberica, which is uh, Spanish ham. Now, we got to say something about Hamon Iberico, right? Yeah. It used to be illegal in the United States up really? until about five or six years ago. You couldn't import it. Wow. And I first had it in Barcelona. Yeah. And it was so good. I had never had a better Pam. Think of like the best Serrano or Prosciutto yeah. you've ever had that just has this really rich, nutty, velvety texture and flavor. Yeah. And it, it's from the acorns. They it's feed from the acorns. That's acorns. right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it really is delicious. It, we can get it in Australia. Um, and, uh, it, but as you say, it's, it's, it's like the Spanish version of prosciutto with that sort of nutty, hazelnutty flavor. And it's also very expensive. Yeah, that yeah. too. $80 a pound at, at, uh, Fromage in Old Saybrook. And, uh-huh. you know. Yeah, so it's not cheap, but it, so we're gonna we're gonna use shaved slices of this. So it's very very fine slice, and what you want to do is you want to wrap it around your wedge of manchego cheese, and yeah. then you you drop an olive a, a feta stuffed olive on the top of that, and stick oh. a toothpick through it, and and that's your uh, that's the easiest tapas that you will ever do. And yep. it is absolutely de- – it's a great combination. It's really delicious. Even if you're not a fan of olives, that particular combination works really well. So that's my tapas for today. Yeah. Wow, that's delicious. 
Well, we, you know, we're going to have to have a tapas party now. <laughs> <laughs> we might do some tapas at Keto Fest. Maybe, maybe we might cook up some. Yeah, we might. Because last year at Keto Fest, I did like six meals for 40 people uh, in 30 right. minutes. Maybe I might try for like 10 tapas meals. That's a good idea. In 30 minutes. Yeah. Wow. I, th- I, think that's, I think that is what I'll try and do. <laughs> well, that's our show. Make sure you come back next week to hear part two of Zoe Rocks. Of course, if you have anything that you want to tell us, something we've said wrong, something you don't agree with, some more research that you found to support or refute anything that we've said, send it by email to dudes at 2ketodudes.com or post it on our website. And you can follow us on Twitter at 2ketodudes, on Instagram at 2ketodudes, and make sure to use the hashtag 2ketodudes. And of course, if you want to join the free ketogenic forum, it's forum.2keto.com. And if useless swag is your fancy, you know, T-shirts, coffee mugs, and other junk with our mugs on them, head over <laughs> to gear.2keto.com. And if you want a shot at getting some of that swag for free, join the 2Keto Dudes fan club. You'll be eligible to win something in every show. Go to fanclub.2keto.com. And if you feel like supporting our podcasts and our forums, think about making a pledge on our Patreon page at patreon.2keto.com. Or just hit the donate button on our website at www.2ketodudes.com or just go to donate.2keto.com. You can also see all of our podcasts and other videos on YouTube at youtube.2keto.com. And if you haven't already, go leave us a review on iTunes. That's how new people get to know about what we do. Two Keto Dudes is brought to you by Two Keto LLC, who strives to support the low-carb community with podcasts and other publications. Well, my friend, keep calm and keto on. And keep calm and keto on, Carl. All right. And we'll see you next time on Two Keto Dudes.